0: You're listening to you're listening. To- you're listening to you're
1: listening to sex gets real. Sex gets real. Sex gets real. Sex gets real with, with Don Sarah. Sarah. With Don Sarah. Thanks. Bye. Good morning, everyone. Well, morning to me. I have been at the, I have been at the Sundance Film Festival all week, which is probably why I sound exhausted because I am but I was there seeing all kinds of movies and um, hearing talks from directors and actors, and it's been phenomenal and inspiring, considering I'm going to erotic film school in a couple of months, so that was delightful. Uh, I also am having to say goodbye to Alex. He's been with me for three whole months and he has to go home in a couple of days, which is literally like soul crushing. And (laughs) I plan on crying for a few days and eating a lot of ice cream. Uh, But it was funny because he's heading home on Thursday and we have the afternoon before he has to be at the airport. And my first thought was, I should get us a hotel so that we can do something like really sexy and special. And of course, I think that seed was planted because I've spent so much time thinking about hotels by day who's been sponsoring the episodes lately. And of course they're sponsoring this episode. So know that Valentine's Day is right around the corner. And if you want to surprise somebody, or if you just need a little bit of a getaway from the hubbub of life, (laughs) Because that's kind of how I feel too. Um, Listeners, you get 5% off your first stay with Hotels by Day. So if you use the code SGR5OFF for Sex Gets Real, SGR5OFF, then you can get 5% off a day stay hotel. You have options of like 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., or for a little more money, like 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and you get a hotel in the city for a day to you know, do something super sexy or get a spa treatment. So, I have my eye on something for Thursday to treat Alex before he heads home. This episode is um I think a really fascinating episode. I'm so excited to to share it with you. I had first heard about Maria Karimji on This American Life and she was featured on an episode that was allowing her to tell a part of her story about being the survivor of female genital mutilation. And she had originally told her story on The Heart Podcast. And it was so moving and open and honest and full of just real conflicting emotions about how she learned that she was different and her feelings about her relationship with her parents and her relationship with her faith and now the activism that she 's doing, and so I reached out to her because I really wanted to have her on the show to educate us about female genital mutilation or fgm and uh, it 's a it 's a wonderful talk maria, as you 'll hear is um, so entertaining and so fun and smart. And we talk all about patriarchy and allowing survivors to define what their bodies feel like. And some of them don't even want to be considered survivors. And we talk about sex education in the US and in Pakistan. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot in here for all of us to sit with and learn from. So let me tell you just a little bit about Maria Karimji and then we will head into the interview. So Maria is a freelance writer based in Karachi, Pakistan. She's currently working on a memoir about home and identity that's going to be published by Spiegel Spiegel and Grau. So I've got all of her links on sexgetsreal.com. Also, don't forget, we now have a Patreon. The show has been around for exactly three years. And I've received so many questions from all of you over the years on how to support the show. And now you can. So if you go to patreon.com slash sexgetsreal, the lowest reward is a dollar. And then it moves up. I am publishing content over there that uh, Patreon viewers can see that's not getting published anywhere else. I've got some really fun rewards that are going to allow you to vote on the questions that I answer and give you exclusive access to getting your questions answered ahead of everyone else. So um, please go over and check it out. Patreon.com slash sex I'm always saying pay for your porn. So maybe it's okay for me to get paid for the show. <laughs> So, anyway, thank you so much. And here is my interview with Maria Krimji on FGM. I am so excited to welcome you to the show, Maria. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm wonderful. Um, I know we've been discussing and planning this chat for a couple of weeks. And of course, what brought me to you, like so many others, was your incredible story that you shared on the heart. A podcast and also on This American Life about your experience with female genital mutilation. And so I would just love to start with the basics. My assumption is most of the listeners probably have some basic understanding of what FGM is, but I would love it if you could share um, just kind of some basics about what it is and any little facts that you know, because I know you're pretty involved with activism.
0: So female genital mutilation or female genital cutting um, is exactly kind of what it sounds like. It's any cut um, to the female genital area, and the World Health Organization defines it as such. Um, they have like three different kinds, and they, it, it, you know, it goes from a small cut to the hood to an entire removal to the clitoris to what's referred to as infibulation, which is where they actually sew the. Um, vagina shut. So it does vary in terms of severity and um, practice from region to region. Um, I'm a member of the Daudi Bora sect. It's a small um, Shia minority sect with roots in India, actually. And there's probably close to like a million of us in the world. We have a huge diaspora community. So there's dowdy boras in australia and pakistan and the united states and the uk um in east africa and as far as i know they've been practicing fgm they do practice one of the least severe forms of fgm um but there's no real medical training that goes on here there's no real conversation people don't really know what's right or how much and um you know, every woman's vagina does look different and (laughs) most of us are cut when we're quite little. So our parts are also quite little. And so there's a huge range of experiences and, um, you know, uh, problems, not problems that come with cutting within the community itself.
1: One of the things that touched me most about your story was how there was this shift for you in when you really started understanding like what had been done to you and we're trying to really understand what FGM was and there was this anger that came up for you towards your mother around allowing this to happen to you and then after having some conversations and realizing later that Your mom really didn't want this for you, but ended up ultimately kind of not really having a choice in doing that. And so that kind of change in the relationship and, and really kind of realizing, um, where your, your mom had been in her own experiences, both with her body and in, in dealing with, with her daughter, which was you. And I just found that so like touching and beautiful. And I'd love to know, like at this point, now that you've been globalized as someone with this story that's been shared over and over and over again, like how has that transformed your relationship with your mother around this particular topic in your bodies?
0: Um, You know, it's really interesting. Um, My mother was recently at a wedding in Pakistan. Um, Weddings in Pakistan are like very Bollywood style. They go on for days. There's tons of people. Um, You get to see people that maybe, you know, you know of or who know of you that are emboldened to come speak to you. And my mother was talking to someone who... Uh she's like, oh, you have kids. What do they do? And my mother kind of offhandedly mentioned that her daughter was a writer. And she's like, oh, what name does she write under? And my mother said my name. And the woman said, oh, <laughs> your daughter did that podcast. And initially, my mother got really hesitant. She was like, oh, man, like, just put my foot in it. Like, I'm going to get yelled at from a member of the Bora community. And this lady starts motioning her husband over to her and her husband comes over and she's like, this woman's daughter is the one who did the podcast. And then both of them just started congratulating my mother on like how, how proud they were that like, she had been brave enough to let me speak. And then, um, and I saw my mother after two months for the first time today, actually. And this is the first story she told me like um, (laughs) at three o'clock in the morning when she came to pick me up from the airport. It's like, it's so funny because I I feel like I forgave her. Mm. And she didn't necessarily like come into forgiving herself. But so much of the larger world has absolved her of what she considers her sin. And so many of the interactions that she has now with so many strangers are them like telling her how amazing and brave and strong that she is. And I think that that has made it easier for her to talk to younger women about not getting this done, to talk to our own family members. So that I think like her own private kind of activism has changed um, our relationship a little bit. In the beginning, I was just very nervous that she wouldn't forgive me for kind of putting her out there Mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, I do talk about my mother and her sex life on the, this American life podcast and on the heart podcast. I I kind of talk about how maybe she didn't have like the greatest, most positive sex life. And, um, And weirdly, this is what her friends are the most upset with me for. So they think that talking about what my mother did is not that bad, but kind of revealing her sex life for the larger public is a terrible, terrible thing. My mom doesn't feel that way. Like she gets like the the reason that I had to put that all out there. But it's so funny to me that so many of the women in her generation are so scandalized by the fact that I talk about my mother as
1: being a sexual being. Um. Mm. I I find that fascinating and I also love that your your mother just kind of gets it and is okay with that. And I think that's interesting too just because I've also read some of your pieces around how because Pakistan is so still very like patriarchal uh and sex education is pretty much absent from schools and that it's really largely taboo still to have any conversations about the act of having sex. And so, I, yeah, I think that's that's so interesting that like there's this acceptance of talking about FGM and these rituals, but then to actually talk about like sex as a thing that someone is having out loud that would cause the scandal. I find that really interesting.
0: Yeah, but it kind of goes along the same vein of like, Women are not allowed to breastfeed in public or, you know, people are really uncomfortable with that. Um, Recently, I was at a restaurant with a bunch of people and I had to go use the restroom and it was winter. So I didn't have a purse and I didn't want to take my coat into the bathroom. So I, I just pulled out a tampon and I went into the bathroom just holding the tampon. And one of the girls that I was at dinner with was like seriously uncomfortable. She said, why did you have to do that? And I said, "Hold my tampon out in public!" Like this is a thing that bothers you, and it was kind of, you know, I went to an all-women's college, like that. That threw me a little bit. I thought, "Wow, like you're so uncomfortable with your own body and the natural things that it does." Um. So yeah, so I think that you know, it's it's patriarchy is like deeply, deeply embedded in how women view other women.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. I know that. Um... FGM has lots of different roots and is based in many different rituals for many different communities around the world. So, just based on your experience and your sect of is it called the Bora, the Daudi Bora, the Daudi Bora? Um, What are the reasons that that they subscribe to FGM, and and why does it? Continue, Or do you feel like it's shifting and that fewer people are are engaging in the practice now?
0: I mean, I, I come from such a privileged background in that, you know, I have a college degree. My father has a college degree. Most of the people that I interact with within the sect are well-educated, are going for careers like lawyers and accountants, et cetera. And so I think the level of conversation that I'm able to have with them about FGM comes from this very progressive kind of mindset. Um, mm-hmm. Which also is, you know, at the same time, I think that it gives me an unrealistic idea of how progressive everyone else is. I don't know how how much the larger community is thinking about this in the same way that we are. But oh. for the people that I've been interacting with, they do seem a little more hesitant to do the procedure. Mm. Um, what I have found so interesting is that until I... and other activists started speaking about this within the faith openly. Men were almost entirely removed from the process. So it's like women were doing this to other women, and women were doing like the heavy lifting of justifying it to their daughters or their daughter in laws, et cetera. They would, or they, even their granddaughters, they would say, This is necessary. It's part of our religion. And that in and of itself was. Use as one of the larger justifications. It is part of our religion that you can question something just because it was like part of um, our faith. And then the second part was, why is it part of our religion? And then they would counter that with, because it's used to curb the sexual desires of women. And so many women that I've spoken to have said that that they have heard this is the justification, it kind of begs the question, like, do you believe that women's sexual desire is so out of control that you need uh-huh. to cut a part of their body off? Like, is that really something that you believe? And, you know, I don't know if 16-year-old girls are able to ask that question of their mothers or their grandmothers. I don't know if people are thinking that hard about why it is that women want to curb other women's sexual desires. What is it about a woman being in charge of her sexuality and her own pleasure. That's so threatening to so many people. And that, and I think that is, you know, one of the, the effects of patriarchy is that we, our fundamental belief system is that women are not entitled to pleasure during sex. And that's something that so many women all over the world, you know, whether or whether or not they've been cut or not, are taught to believe that a man's pleasure comes first, that their pleasure is secondary, that acting solely on, you know, sexual desire is bad and so on and so forth that they don't think twice about the fact that they're taking a seven year old girl. And this is, I mean, it's child mutilation, like let's, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, having them be cut in order to prevent them being in charge of their own sexuality. So yeah, I would say it's patriarchy, but it's a insidious patriarchy that mm-hmm. that is generations deep and something that I'm not sure that that many women in my sect have the language really to mm-hmm. kind of delve into.
1: Yeah, something that really stood out to me in the this American life episode was that you were talking to your friend Samina. And she mentioned that she masturbated and the two of you were talking about like sexual pleasure and sexual experience. And, and one of the things that like in listening to it strikes me is, is I can see like upholding a ritual because you feel like it's meaningful. But when the answer, when that's challenged is to curb your sexual desire If the person saying that has experienced sexual desire or sexual pleasure, there seems to be some type of disconnect happening there.
0: Or maybe they think that's the most sexual desire that they're entitled to, right?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Like if you are, if sex is not awful and painful for you and you were cut, then you're not going to think twice about what's happening to your daughter because your experience is that you're still getting an adequate amount of. Of pleasure from sex.
1: I know one of the things that uh, we talked about as we were preparing for this was that you really don't want to be the lone voice of FGM in that your story has become very popular and shared so many times over, which is such a wonderful, beautiful thing, um, partially because you're just such a gifted storyteller and you are also so brave in, in sharing your story. But there are so many other experiences and feelings around being a survivor and relating to your body. And, um, and I'd love to know, like, how does it, how are you kind of moving through the world now that people are turning to you as an expert and and requesting your voice over and over again?
0: So one of the things that I have started doing almost like, shockingly recently is is talking to other women who were cut and asking them how they feel about it what their stories are you know and and this is i spoke to a a bunch of girls who are three or four years younger than me who were all born in the united states and were all cut by doctors in the united states and all of them um for the most part were masturbating and in like, you know, able to orgasm or believe that they were orgasming with this kind of lingering um, question in the back of their mind. That was something along the lines of, is this a real orgasm? Does it get better than this? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, um, and one of them actually posed the question that she doesn't actually believe that she was cut, that she went to the doctor, but the doctor didn't cut her. And then, and like she is still, you know, intact, but then she still remembers kind of going to the doctor and all of that, but doesn't actually remember being cut. And then she still wonders if she was cut. So, so all of these stories, I think, um, like they're they're kind of filling in a lot of blanks for me. Um, mm-hmm. I've been working with an organization called Seio, um, and they're trying to um, kind of amplify the voices of uh, FGM survivors from Asia. And since so much of like the global focus on FGM ends up being as this like African problem, it's trying to counter that narrative by mm-hmm. including the voices of women from the Daudi Bora sect, but also from Malaysia and Thailand and Indonesia where this uh where cutting does happen and um kind of diversifying the narrative. And sometimes I just go, they have a blog. It's a wonderful little series. And sometimes they go on their blog and kind of look at the stories. And um, one of the more difficult pieces for me to read was actually from a woman who, um, who was cut and she refuses to say that she was mutilated. She says that she's not traumatized or damaged or broken. Um, She never felt like her life was at risk and she doesn't want to be, you know, labeled as a survivor, but at the same time, she realizes that not everyone who has been cut has the same privileges as her, and she still believes that it's wrong. Um, I think that's really, really interesting because I can't – I personally can't imagine being cut and not feeling mutilated because that's my experience. But it's also important to know that there's women out there who've been cut, who are living their lives, who don't feel like it impacts them on a daily level, who still believe that it's wrong, um, There's women out there who are, you know, able to orgasm, who believe that their bodies were violated. They're, you know, I think that remembering that for me is really, really important just because I still carry around so much trauma that I forget that not everyone has the same experience as me. And so therefore maybe it doesn't operate from the same place of rage or anger that I do.
1: Mm. I know that you found a couple of quotes from other survivors, and I was wondering if you might want to share a couple of them now. Yeah. So this is from um, an anonymous writer, and she says
0: that one of my main insecurities about sex was that I felt like I was driving without the headlights on. Oftentimes, I didn't know where to go or how to guide my driver. I felt like a failure. To this day, I still have not experienced orgasm. While sex is enjoyable for me and I could describe what I can achieve as a mini climax, I was bothered by the fact that I may never get to experience this wonderful part of life. And I found that very affecting because I can't, I mean, I have never had an orgasm, but I can't imagine having something close to an orgasm and wondering if it's real. Mm. Um, and then um, Maria Ali, who's a writer based out of London, um I think sums it up so beautifully. She says, it may have been just a pinch of skin, but it was a part of me, a part of my femininity and a part of my womanhood. Wow. And then the last quote, I guess that I wanted to share is from an anonymous father whose daughter was cut and and he says, I've asked your mother many times since this occurred, why an educated woman who resides in a country where this is illegal subjected her daughter to this practice. I never received a valid reason. Simply saying that it's in our religion is not a good enough answer for me to accept that my daughter went through this.
1: Those are all so powerful. I have chills. It's fascinating to me as a sex educator, I get You know, I've had hundreds or thousands of questions from listeners over the years, and and one of the universal truths that just keeps coming up over and over and over again for the women who write into me or the folks who have vulvas, since not all of them are women. um, You know, is this shame around how their vulvas look? It's shame around not being able to orgasm. It's shame around not really knowing what they want, and it's just i don't know it's it's fascinating to me that there's just seems to be kind of this this systemic like shame and fear of our bodies and misinformation and then to add on to that someone taking something from your body that you did not choose for yourself and i know that like intersexed individuals often feel this when they're and, you know, as a youngster forced to have certain types of surgeries so that they conform to how their bodies are, you know, quote unquote, supposed to look, but to not be given the choice um, in how your body is treated and, and what happens to it is just like so heartbreaking. And yet to hear also stories of women and survivors who are finding their way to pleasure and finding their way to accepting their body and not even necessarily feeling uh, traumatized by what they've been through and saying like, no, this is my body and it works for me. And I don't want this to happen to others. But you know, for me, like I'm moving through life happy and just the diversity of the stories, I think is wonderful that you're sharing these so that we can see just the rich landscape of it all.
0: I was recently at an anti-FGM summit and one of the speakers on a panel was a doctor in Arizona and she kind of offhandedly mentioned that she has patients that come in who are defibrillated. So, um, you know, the, the sewing up is kind of reversed and then they, they have a really hard time because they don't think that their vagina looks pretty anymore. And I, and I had never thought about it. And mm-hmm. that way before I'd never thought that maybe like this is so normalized that you would you would feel like you were weird for getting this process reversed, that you would you would hate how you look down there. Um but there's also something kind of like poetic about it. I don't know mm-hmm. if I've ever spent that much time like looking at my parts. I happen <laughs> to be a little bit scared of them still, you know? Like, um and this idea that there's women who've been cut who feel such kinship with their vaginas and their vulva that they they're upset when, you know, they have to get it reversed because they know it's they want um, less pain during sex or because they realize it's going to be more difficult when they give birth, etc. um they have a hard time with that and I thought, "Huh, this is this is a different perspective. I've only been coming at this from a very very specific angle."
1: Mhm. I I wonder what all of the folks who are listening to this, like their assumptions and beliefs are around FGM, because I know that for years, the only story that I had ever heard or seen in the news was, you know, uh, coming out of Africa, and it was young girls who were being sewn completely closed, and uh, it was a very specific story that made me... That kind of made me assume that there was just no opportunity whatsoever for pleasure or enjoying your body um, if you had been cut. And the first time that that narrative started shifting for me was when I read the Anne Rice erotica trilogy about Sleeping Beauty. Have you by chance read the read those books or heard people mention them to you? No. Yeah, so it's uh it's pretty hardcore BDSM uh trilogy that's like literally all sex. It's a it's an erotica trilogy. But in the third book, the main character is taken to uh some place that I I believe is like in Egypt or the Middle East and she encounters women who don't have clitorises. And her assumption is that they can't enjoy sex and they actually show her otherwise. And there's this really beautiful sex scene between the main character and this woman who has been cut and doesn't have a clitoris and still has this like fantastic sexual pleasure, but she keeps it a secret from, from the man in her life. And, and I remember just feeling like, how wonderful and how I felt so, so much surprise that that could be an option for people. And so hearing that people are, are, are sharing stories about like small orgasms, mini orgasms, curious about their orgasms, you know, that I think just adds so much richness. And, and I wonder part of your story that you shared was going to a doctor and wanting to find out more about, like, would you be able to have sex without pain? And you also shared a story about your your first sexual intercourse experience and what that was like for you. And and since your story has been shared, you know, has your experience of sexual pleasure in your body changed at all, or have you had um, new experiences or thoughts about it? Um.
0: I'm not the first person to say this probably, but I do believe that it's almost a more psychological trauma for me at this point. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just because my first experience, my first and only experience at sex went so badly that now I'm almost like too terrified to try it again. Like I just mm-hmm. get way too much in my head. Um, and I can't really get out of it. And um, currently I'm living in Pakistan. So my opportunities for kind of like talking to a therapist or a sex therapist or whatever are quite limited. Um, And so, so yeah, so I I do wonder how, how it's um, how much of it is physical and how much of it is psychological refinery 29. I believe if I'm not mistaken did this great infographic a couple of months back, it was like phenomenal about like different ways to masturbate um, and like a a a large number of my well-meaning friends sent it to me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Yeah. And I, you know, and I did try it. um, But at the same time, like, it's like, I, I was like, oh, okay, this feels good. Like I would enjoy this if someone else was doing it. But it didn't necessarily like get better than that. Um, One of my New Year's resolutions last year was to kind of like teach myself how to have an orgasm. I don't really know. When I just stopped doing that, it might've been, um, pretty early in the year, I would say. Um, and, and yeah, and I feel like maybe that should get back on my list for this year. Try and learn how to have an orgasm. I just completely forgot about it, to be quite honest, until right this moment.
1: <laughs> You're like, I'm putting masturbation on my to-do list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of the things that, uh, I encounter over and over and over again, uh, on the show is people who are struggling to communicate about their body or shame that they have about their body, you know, talking to partners or doctors about their experiences and what they need. And I know that you've had some experience talking to doctors and, uh, about your body and, and even having them vulnerably say, I've really never encountered this before. I'm going to have to do a little bit of research. And what have you learned about communicating about your body and your experience with people when you're in kind of those intimate one-on-one settings?
0: That I have to be patient, I think I would say. Doctors Mm -hmm. are, are... I don't know. I would say the doctors believe, I think a lot of the time that they are gods or that they are perfect and they know everything and they go into a room and, um, I don't know if they love being questioned or love it when patients have a perspective that's not like their own. Um, and so I think that being patient has been something that I'm, I'm working on with doctors. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I just remember speaking to, um, and o b uh, G y n recently who who tried to tell me I mean, she didn't really try. She just straight up told me that she had seen, like, women from Somalia who were, like, far worse off than me, so I shouldn't worry about it. And I I really do believe that she, like, thought that she was doing me a favor by telling me this, and I I almost wanted to, like, punch her in the face. And I just kept telling myself that that she really believed that she was being helpful, that she didn't necessarily know how condescending and alienating what she was saying was. So. Well, on that topic. But I think, yeah, doctors (laughs) in general can get a whole lot more sensitivity training, but.
1: Yeah, yeah, not only doctors, but I'm sure all of us, you know, I mean, um, I, I think that all of us need more practice, whether it's fat phobia or ableism or, you know, any of the oppressive isms that we encounter you know, this kind of like othering that can happen so easily. And I know that I've probably done it a thousand times already during this talk, but um, I would love to know just based on your experiences and also your conversation with other survivors, like how can we like as a society and a culture better support survivors of FGM? I think that allowing us to have our
0: own ideas about whether we're traumatized or whether we even consider ourselves survivors or whether we still believe that we're victims, like how we define our own experiences is really, really important. I think that there is a, a larger push in the world to kind of pigeonhole everything into a, you know, nice little easy narrative of oppressed Muslim women or oppressed African women and them like rising up against the tides or whatever. And I don't know if that, that experience is true of everyone. And I've also found, um, for my sect specifically, what's so interesting is that there's a lot of people who believe that FGM is wrong, but they don't believe that the entire sect as a whole is like flawed or bad. That's a little bit how I feel, right? Like I'm not able to separate this awful thing that they have done to me from like every other thing that they've ever done. Other people are able to separate that out. And and I find that I sometimes alienate people who believe that FGM is bad, Um because I'm so against the sect that I don't allow them to engage in conversations about how much they hate that they were cut um, while still wanting to remain a part of the sect. Does that make sense? So I think that that's also really important is just pausing to, and for me, that's really hard because my experience is so integral to how I now see myself Um, it's hard for me to, like, make room for people who don't feel oppressed, who don't believe their lives were, like, stolen from them, who don't think that it was that big of a deal, you know? Um, And so, so yeah, I think that's, like, one of the biggest things is to allow the person who's been cut, allow the person who defines herself as a survivor
1: to get to define herself. Mm -hmm. There was a study out of Egypt that showed... With increased education, rates of FGM dropped pretty significantly. And I'm wondering, where can we start as a culture to get better education or to change the dialogue that's happening so that we can really get rid of FGM? I mean, where, where do these conversations have to start and how can we make an impact?
0: Well, for starters, I think that there's an overarching narrative from the Western world about, like, the Muslim world and, like, women and sex, right? I think that, like, all of us are supposed to be sexually oppressed, period, at the end. Um, You know, we're not necessarily, like, liberated in the same way that Western women are supposed to be. And that kind of narrative kind of permeates a Western understanding of women in the Muslim world. And I think that for starters is already problematic um you know maybe maybe Muslim women know a thing or two about sex like maybe allow that maybe (laughs) they can wear a hijab and like orgasm you know (laughs) and then maybe those two things can be true at the same time I just I don't believe that a lot of people believe that and when I ask them these kinds of questions they look at me like I'm an alien from a different planet um I just, you know, those two things, they can be religious, they can read the Quran, they can pray five times a day, and they can have like insane, dirty, filthy sacks, like they can do it. Um, And so I think just like, letting that narrative die out that that women are oppressed just because um, of the way that the Western world has defined oppression is a good place to start. The second one is just investing in, you know, supporting organizations that do Um, family planning and sex education work in developing countries, you know, that's a good start. Pathfinder is a great, um, example of that. Um, you know, find countries where that's not true. There's a big sister movement in, um, Kenya where women are, are helping other younger women, um, it's an entire anti-FGM movement that kind of uses the big sister network. Um, And it's phenomenal. There's the daughters of Eve project. There's, and all of these people are doing like grassroots training, grassroots conversations. Um, And so just kind of focusing at at their methods and what they've learned as opposed to kind of looking at it from that lens of, you know, the Western worldview is a good start.
1: I see that danger so often of applying Western sexual expectations to other cultures around the world and then passing judgments on on them. And I also see that a lot within sex education communities, even here in the States, of feeling like there's only one way to be empowered around your sexuality, or there's the you know the only way to be a truly liberated woman is to have had an orgasm but like 30% of women in the states haven't even had an orgasm right and so like how can we who are doing this work and talking about sex openly and offering education and offering a different narrative leave space for different bodies and different shapes and different experiences and different religions and different cultures so that it's a dialogue rather than like a prescription of how to be sexually. So I love that invitation around just like, maybe you can be in a hijab and also like really be having amazing sex that would blow a lot of people's minds.
0: (laughs) I mean, like you, you would be surprised at the amount of times I say this to people. And like, as soon as I say it, the thought occurs to them
1: for the first
0: time, like you can just see it (laughs) written on their face, you know? And I'm always like, I just don't understand, you know. I also, I like, I I told someone, I was like, I'm pretty sure you can wear a hijab and also maybe have had sex before you got married. Like, I think that that could happen. Like, you could be Christian and have sex before you get married and still, like, believe in Jesus. Like, I think that could still happen. Yeah. Um, and you still, you know, and then they were like, oh, but then maybe they're wearing the hijab because – um their family wants them to and i was like no no i think that they can still wear the hijab because they think you know that's like what they're supposed to do but also have sex before marriage and it's like it, it, i don't know it's you know and that's the kind of danger of thinking is that that there's only one right way to be liberated there's only yeah. one right way to be having sex you know mhm
1: well, and to me something else that kind of comes through in that narrative is not only like the assumption that Muslim women or women who cover aren't sexually active, don't have sexual desire and or are having terrible sex. Like the assumption is also to me if they're partnered with Muslim men that the Muslim men have zero interest in their partner's pleasure and they have zero interest in being good lovers. And so that to me is also really reductionist of just like the painting of this entire culture and the way that they must be moving through the world. But, you know, I just, we need to leave more space than that, right? That there can be these amazing sexual encounters happening within all of these different types of relationships. And like for as many selfish lovers as there are, there's probably as many giving lovers and, and we need to be opening that dialogue up.
0: Right. And, and you know, the, the, that, that, exists in the Western world, right? Like, you can have yeah. an extremely tender, extremely loving husband who just, like, doesn't do it for you sexually. Right. Like, that can be true. And maybe he's just not interested in your sexual pleasure, but he, like, washes the dishes and takes care of the kids. Like, that's so a thing.
1: It could be true, yep. you know? Yeah. Um, it's such a, like... Yeah. I <laughs> just, I want more, more opportunities for all of our voices to be heard, especially voices for people who usually get spoken for, right? So I think we see that for Muslim women. We see that for sex workers. We see that for survivors of all types where well-meaning people kind of step in and try and control the narrative instead of just allowing the diversity of voices to exist, even if they're contradictory or even if they're things you don't want to hear and things that, you know, I, I know that a lot of people who, do work around like sex worker advocating are afraid of letting sex workers say like, actually it super sucked and it was kind of abusive and they are afraid those narratives kind of damage the work that's being done. And so they try to silence them. And, and so allowing for people who have been through FGM to say they don't feel like they're survivors because they've never been traumatized and like allowing that to be a truth
0: yeah or also you know at the same time women who have been cut who don't feel like they have like gotten to the part where they they have survived anything that they're still kind of living through their trauma like don't Mm -hmm. like don't force them to like come up with a nice little like fun word um to define themselves like let -hmm. them just be women who are cut for a little longer before they're like victims
1: or survivors yeah something you said earlier that really shocked me Well, I don't know if shock's the right word, but like, it just kind of made me like, what is I know that, uh, or correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that FGM is legal in Pakistan. Is that true? It's not, it's not illegal. It's not illegal. Okay. So it's kind of just this middle area, but to hear that you've talked to people who were cut in the United States, is this happening inside of communities by people who are kind of like leaders of the community or is this being done by like licensed doctors that that shocked me a little bit my my understanding
0: is that it was done by licensed doctors which you know like like i don't know if you're gonna force your daughter to be cut would i rather you go to someone who like understands anatomy or would i rather it be like putting your daughter on a plane and sending her back to pakistan or india and finding like the the lady and you know yeah who cuts and so on and so forth. Does that, yeah. does that make sense? Like, I, like totally. I'm, not, I'm not advocating for no. one over the other, but I kind of am. I'm thinking like, and, and that, yeah. you know, when I just did those interviews, I'm sorry, I'm like losing my words in my excitement. But when I did those interviews with those girls, what was so striking to me is that one of them was just kind of like, I just think I wasn't cut. Like, I think the doctor just saved me, you know? And mm. I, and I just wonder, I'm like, maybe you're telling the truth. And that is something that like, you know, what if you're a doctor and you look at a, a seven-year-old girl and you're you're thinking, oh, my gosh, like, I would do so much damage from the scalpel because of what is actually showing up here because of mm-hmm. everything being tiny or her vulva being this way or her hood being so, you know, small.
1: Yeah. And then
0: just opting not to do it as opposed to feeling pressured to do it because
1: they're not a licensed medical professional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree with you that if if this procedure is going to be done, let let it be done in a sterile environment by someone who has training in anatomy and how to use the tools, right? That's the safer alternative to being in somebody's living room and having it done on their floor. But also this interesting story of like yeah, maybe maybe there are doctors out there who are saying they're doing the thing, but actually not. And, and then what does that mean? Right. To the, to the little girl and also to the family, you know, will they ever find out? Will that ever become known? And, and what kind of a dynamic does that create? That's really fascinating to me.
0: Yeah. Wow. (laughs)
1: one of the things that I've found kind of amusing about having a podcast is that, you know, of course, people can Google me. And so much of the podcast over the years has been me talking about my own sexual experiences and sexual failures and, you know, like all the ways that I've done all of these bizarre, wonderful things. And I know that you have talked about how at this point in your life, anybody can Google you and find out your whole story and and... Has dating been different for you since your story came out? Have you dated at all or have you just been so busy that hasn't been something that you've had time for? You know, what's that been like navigating that space? So it's actually really interesting
0: because yes, people can Google you and they will um, <laughs> you say you're on Tinder and you say your your name is your first name is Maria and you're a writer in Pakistan like ninety nine percent of men are going to Google Maria Pakistan writer, and then they're <laughs> gonna get to my story like it will happen um, so even if they don't have my last name um, i I have apparently won the internet with my name so <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, and then and then the, you get two types of men. One who's totally freaked out and wants you to know if they're not a bad person, but, like, think that your baggage is way too much for them to handle. Baggage that you didn't tell them about, that they just found by themselves. Um, and then you get the guy who thinks that his magic penis will, like, fix you oh. and all of your sexual trauma. Um, no. And, and honestly, like from online dating, I just have not met um, someone who doesn't fall into one of those two categories, (sighs) but both of those people, like I, I wrote that piece. I had full control over what I put out there. I'm talking to you. I still have full control over what I'm saying. This idea that, you know, all of me, just because you read one thing I put out on the internet is a little fascinating to me. Like, you don't. You don't really know me. You don't know about my relationship with my father. You don't know about my brother. You don't know really anything about like what turns me on. There's so much that makes me up that you don't know because as a writer, I made editorial decisions about what to include and what not to include. So you just made a decision about my baggage and my trauma without really even involving me in that discussion. So so yeah, it's a little bit fascinating.
1: Yeah online dating is um is a masochistic act of <laughs> weeding through a lot of of <laughs> disappointment to hopefully find one of those little kernels every once in a while but um the magic penis that'll fix it is like the worst <laughs> that makes I mean, me like so men bad. have
0: literally been great they've been like oh i'm a civil rights lawyer and like just had awesome conversations with and then somewhere in there they'll be like but you haven't had sex with me right. and i want to punch them in the face and i'm like oh my gosh like you really believe this you know but <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it's like you know <laughs> A guy approaching a lesbian. Well, but you haven't had sex with me yet. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm sure that happened. Oh, God. How disappointing. Well, I'm glad you brought up your brother because uh, I know one of the things that you mentioned in your story was that when he found out about what had happened to you, it stimulated some anger in him and, and some activism. And I'd love to hear a little more about that.
0: Oh yeah. My brother is awesome. He is, he's the best little human. Um, He takes a while to kind of metabolize information is how I would put that. And for the first couple of years after he learned about FGM and that it happened to women that he cared about, he kind of really just wanted to have the conversations from within the community. He, he is a man of faith is how I would put it. Like he believes deeply and strongly in God and in, um and at that point he saw a lot of benefits to the community aspect of our religion he wasn't necessarily against organized religion and he believed that if he had enough rational conversations with clergy with you know members that were de- you know closely involved with the clergy that he would be able to kind of get to a better understanding of why this happened what he found was that no one was willing to engage in conversation with him And then when he was given the opportunity to go to the UN, um, he came at it from a very, like, sensible, almost anthropological angle. And he said specifically that he believed that it was incredibly important for men to get involved in the fight against FGM, that that men needed to say loudly and strongly that they were against it, that they believed it was bad. And – I mean the world is inherently misogynist, so when he did that, of course, that made bigger waves than anything that I had done <laughs> uh, um and and as a result um he was he was vilified by the sect you know and his refrain was that i tried to have these conversations i tried time and time again to have these conversations and no one was willing to have them with me and then finally i just did this because i really do believe that it's barbaric um and um and and you know now he's kind of grappling with the fact that uh, of a religion that he loved so much uh, a community that he had believed in so strongly is deeply inherently flawed and that has been really difficult for him but at the same time he believes so strongly and so purely that FGM is wrong uh-huh. that um he can't really like forgive the sect for
1: how they've handled this so yeah wow well i hope that he finds a way through that that feels um, that feels good so that he can maintain that connection to his faith but also continue you know using his voice and his privilege and his his power to you know have these important conversations and to ask other men to to step up and ask these questions I mean that quote that you shared from the father of of a an fgm survivor and kind of his his thoughts about what had happened you know that to me is also a really really powerful part of the story how has your father reacted to all of this
0: my father um he he feels really really bad um uh, like really really bad like on you know like just objectively like this was terrible um it's funny because he read that that um Initial piece is called Damage. He read mm-hmm. that and he walked away from that, um, really conflicted, and then finally asked for forgiveness, which I didn't even realize that he like, like, got that he was kind of complicit in that. Like I, and so the fact that he saw himself as responsible for what had happened and then asked for forgiveness, I thought was um, pretty remarkable. At the same time, he and my mother have both been. Exceptional at supporting both my brother and I in kind of taking this fight to the next level to like be public, you know, Mm -hmm. in the fact that we think this is wrong. Um, My my father has been told by some of his friends that he needs to stop sharing what we do online, et cetera, because it looks bad, and he has he hasn't really stopped. Um, You know, he's still very, very proud of us. My mother as well. She doesn't share anything on social media, um, but is quietly having those kinds of conversations. So I think both of them hmm. are, are trying to find like the best way
1: forward. Has your father talked at all about what his experience was during the time that you were cut like was he aware of the conversations happening was he aware that this was about to be done or was recently done to you or was this really something that was kept within the women of the family and he just kind of had a vague idea that it might happen at some point from what i understand from what he and my mother have said at separate occasions is that my mother did go
0: to him she said i need you to back me up in this fight against your parents and he was just kind of like, meh, um, because he didn't necessarily understand the severity of what my mother was asking for, or he just didn't want to pick a fight with his parents. Like, who knows what his reasoning was at the time, but but mm-hmm. he was just kind of like, you – I don't think that he was like, you're not allowed to, like, fight for our daughter. It was more like, please leave me out of this, um, is my understanding of it. And and I don't – I haven't necessarily asked specifically, um, just because I don't want either one of them to feel, like, accused, yeah. but –
1: that is what I pieced together. Yeah. So I have two last questions for you. The first is, I know that there are so many amazing things going on in your life and that <laughs> your, your FGM experience is such a tiny percentage of, of who you are and what you're working on. So first, I'd love to know kind of like what's next for you? What's coming up for you? What are you excited about?
0: Um, So Spiegel and Grau, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House, just bought my memoir. So (gasps) that's pretty exciting. I haven't finished writing it quite yet. So um, they bought it on partial. But um, yeah, so I'm working on finishing that up. And I'm like really, really excited. I um, have always wanted to write a book. And of course, the FGM story will be a part of it. But it's more about... Family and immigration and identity and belonging, and how we define ourselves as being from a place or what we decide our home is.
1: Um, So,
0: so yeah, so that's what I'm excited about, and that's what I'm currently working on.
1: (laughs) Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. I loved reading about uh, your move to Houston when you were a kid and how desperately you wanted, like, the Christmas tree and just kind of that process of, like, Of, of being in Houston and having these, these new experiences and your parents getting that Christmas tree. And, um, so I'm looking forward to reading your memoir and just like digging more into some of those stories. That's awesome. I mean, it's like the most exciting thing that I've ever done. So (laughs) I'm like
0: a little bit biased, but (laughs) like I said, I'm still writing it. So it might be a little
1: while. Is there anything else that you're working on or is your, most of your attention right now? Like I've got to write this memoir. Um yeah that uh I just I don't necessarily
0: freelance when I'm not in Karachi but I just got back I have a a couple of like half baked story ideas that I kind of want to see if there's a fresh angle on um most of them are women's rights stories so mm-hmm. um one is kind of looking at forced conversions of young Hindu women who are kind of kidnapped as like children and then oh. married off to Muslims and kind of forced into conversion. Oh. Um, and the other is a, a deeper investigation into the legal implications of our very shoddy rape laws in this country.
1: And by this country, do you mean Pakistan or the United yes. States? Because of <laughs> I mean, like, I'm kind know, of like all relative. it's a little, it's all relative. <laughs> Yeah, I just saw a headline actually yesterday that a Switzerland court uh, found a man guilty of rape for secretly removing a condom during intercourse when she had basically said, like, I'll only have sex with you if you wear a condom. And so he put one on, but then during intercourse removed it secretly. And this Swiss court found him guilty of rape because she didn't consent to that act. And it started this really intense conversation about like how that would never happen here in the United States. <laughs> of course <laughs> but, not. Because, um, yeah. But yeah, it would be really interesting to read your piece about Pakistan and and kind of what that looks like too.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, let's see, let's see how far I go with it.
1: So the last thing I want to just briefly touch on before we wrap up is I know that kind of what what started so much of your conversation about what happened to you was getting your hands on a copy of Our Body is Ourselves when you were young and seeing drawings of vulvas and anatomy and comparing them to your body and realizing, like, something was very different. And um, I'd love to know, like, because that was so influential for you, having access to that information, what is kind of your perspective on getting information about bodies and sex to young girls in countries where maybe it's less accessible. Like is there a way that that we can enable that information and do you think that's an important part of of what needs to happen? Yes.
0: I mean, that book was was eye-opening for me. I think about my brother um who's 3 years younger than me and all of his friends And, you know, they got like 95% of their information about sex from the internet. I I was just literally three years older than him and the internet was not that accessible to me at that point. So I did have to go to books. And sometimes I think about that. I'm like, the internet is a dark, horrible place, you know, do I, I'm so glad that I had a book that kind of (laughs) outlined so much for me in a way that was almost, you know, academic, but also so digestible. So um, and I do believe that in Pakistan, most of the kids are getting their information about sex. They're not. They're not getting it at sex ed from school. You know, yeah. they might be getting like, "Here's how reproduction works," but they're not getting like, "Use a condom" in Pakistan whatsoever. Um, yeah. And and sex is is personal and intimate and scary, and sometimes you can't talk to your girlfriends about it and. And maybe your girlfriends don't know a whole lot about it and you can't talk to your mom. And I don't know, like, where do you go? Do you, What What do you Google? What does Google get you? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and so, <laughs> mixed results. <laughs> mixed results, exactly. And like, what if you're trying to figure out what sex looks like and you get onto a hardcore pornography site and you're like scared for the rest of your life? Um <laughs> I don't know if I want that done to me. <laughs> exactly. Like, this This does not look like fun for the woman, et cetera. So, yeah, I think that that's, that's super, super important. But I have no idea what the, the actual approach to getting that information to people would look like. I mean, uh-huh. it would be a fundamental, like, recalibration of how we think about sex, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even here... Uh in the States, which let's be honest, is not one of the most progressive places in the world when it comes to sex education. But, you know, teaching sex to kids here is so controversial. And yet so many of us, you know, in Western society feel like we are so superior to so many other cultures for our access to sex information. And yet it's so sadly limited. Could you see yourself at any point Moving into a space where you're writing a book or or doing any kind of work around, like, sex education for girls? Maybe. I don't know. I just just feel like I don't –
0: like, I haven't necessarily worked in that space extensively, and I would have to do so much, like, research and probably – yeah, I mean, I think it would be really interesting now that you're bringing it up. I'm like, hmm, I should look at like other countries yeah. that have maybe like implemented this kind of model, and like mm-hmm. if they got funding, I, I can imagine funding for something like this is like really hard to get because <laughs> most government programs are going to be, oh hell no, <laughs> we're um, not touching that.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: But um, you know, someone shared a really interesting article with me about a a graphic. Um, almost a comic about like a girl's first like period that was like being distributed within Pakistan. It's like a fascinating little like pamphlet. And it talks about like, because a lot of these girls like didn't have moms who would tell them that like a period was imminent. And then they'd go to school and think they were dying or go home and not be able to talk about their, you know, Uh um, about their parents with their parents. So then they like, someone came up with this like amazing little story about a girl in her first period. And, and it's, it's very like, Beautifully done in that it removes a lot sort of the shame element that comes along with like a lot of conversations about periods, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and kind of normalizes it and makes it very comfortable and gives you like language and uh, questions and so on and so forth to ask. And um, so that the entire procedure isn't. And so I have seen things like that going on. Um, mm-hmm. But again, like, can you imagine in the United States a girl like who's 11 years old not knowing what her period is before she gets her period?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that, as you were talking, occurred to me, too, is, you know, there's so much danger in, like, Western sex educators wanting to create materials for Muslim communities and African communities and Hindu communities of kind of applying this Western ideal to the information that's provided. And so I just, I see so much value in people within the community creating these things, you know, writing these pamphlets about your first period with an understanding of what is your community like and, and what are the terms that are safe to use and that make you feel comfortable in talking about these things. And so, you know, how can we empower sex educators and creators within each of these communities to be creating the content so that they're most relevant and most understanding of all the issues rather than, you know, kind of the savior complex of like, I'm American and I know all the sex things, so I'll write this book for all these people who don't have access to sex education. And, you know, I just, I see so much danger in that that approach. Of course. Yeah. 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 Well, um, I would love it if you would share with all of our listeners how they can stay in touch with you and where they can find you online. I will, of course, for this episode, link to your stories uh, so that they can listen to them if they haven't heard it already. But um, how can people kind of stay along with you on your journey and find out when your memoir is coming out?
0: Yeah, Twitter. Twitter is the best way to get a hold of me. And if not, then email. So my Twitter handle is I am sorry I, like, made it, like, way back in the day of the internet, but it's M underscore Karimji. And, yeah, if you tweet at me, I will respond. And if you want to send me an email, just send it to Karimji at gmail.com. And usually I'm pretty good about responding to that. If you find me on Facebook and send me a message and I don't respond, like, it's probably because I just haven't gotten on Facebook and looked at my messages. So, good to know
1: the <laughs> least effective way to get a hold of me there you go <laughs> so what not to do <laughs> well maria i just want to thank you so much for being so generous and coming on the show and talking a little bit about your story and your family and also sharing those really powerful quotes from other people who have experienced fgm i think this is going to be a really thought-provoking episode for everyone who is listening
0: thanks guys for listening And thank you so much, Dawn, for your thoughtful
1: questions. Oh, sure. Yeah. So to everyone listening, thank you so much. You can head to sexgetsreal.com for this episode to find all of the links to the stories, some of the organizations that Maria mentioned, um, and of course, for all of Maria's links. If you have any questions or comments, you can contact me there. Feel free to send them in. And also don't forget, I'm still accepting listener confessions for this month's theme. So until next week, this is Dawn Sarah. Bye.